0: Welcome to the Brownstein-Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Based in California, the White Buffalo Land Trust is a leader in an international regenerative agriculture movement. Shareholder Beth Collins joins its founder and president Steve Finkel and director of land stewardship Jesse Smith to discuss the acquisition of 1,000 acres on the Gaviota Coast in Santa Barbara County And their plans to preserve habitat while improving human health and supply chains for regenerative products creating a model for sustainable farms of the future
1: hello everyone this is beth collins i'm a california real estate and land use attorney at brownstein and i'm very excited to um, introduce to you today two representatives from one of our amazing pro bono clients white buffalo land trust they're a nonprofit specializing in regenerative ag uh, or agriculture and they're here to talk to you today about what they're doing with their exciting project and uh, how what they're doing will help change the world so first we're going to start with introductions first we have steve finkel founder and president Uh, of white buffalo
0: thanks hi beth um really appreciate you having us on the podcast today um and before we do get into anything we need to express a, a huge gratitude to you and your partners and the brownstein firm for uh such incredible support of our work um you guys have been just exceptional and generous and and given us wise counsel uh and really supported our evolution and helped us reach the milestones we've reached so from all of us to you and your team, thank you very much. So White Buffalo Land Trust was founded in, in 2018 with a, a clear mission to develop, promote, and, and design, and ex- help expand uh, regenerative agriculture, um, bring alignment between conservation, agriculture, uh, research, and human development, and um, and really put the principles and practices of regenerative agriculture um, into, into existence here in our community uh, on the central coast of California, focused in Santa Barbara County, uh, and then really help to um, build this national and global movement of regenerative agriculture. So uh, we see our work here as incredibly impactful uh, locally, uh, influencing the region and helping inform the global movement.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. And uh, it's our pleasure. Uh, we we love working with you all. We also have here with us today Jesse Smith. Jesse is the Director of Land Stewardship at White Buffalo. And Jesse, I wonder if you could um, just briefly talk to us about what your position is at White
2: Buffalo. Yeah, thanks so much, Beth. And uh, once again, I'm grateful to be here with you having this conversation um, you know, my position with this organization really is, uh, almost as diverse as our fields of focus. First and foremost, I really am in charge of uh, the management practices that we bring to each of the, the, the landscapes and uh, projects that we work on. But as Steve mentioned, you know, our, our work really crosses over into education and training and science research and monitoring um and enterprise development and all of those things have an intricately link uh to uh the farming the ranching uh the plants the animals um and so really weaving uh all of that work together is uh where where my purview uh, both begins and, and ends and so i'm just grateful to to be able to work within an organization that has uh the ability to really function in all these different worlds um we we have a uh very strict adherence to you know the focus of soil health and water resources and biodiversity in the way that we farm, um, but that spreads itself into so many other uh, facets of our work and and uh, this is the community that we get to work with.
1: So I heard both Steve and Jesse mention the concepts of scientific research, education, outreach to the larger agricultural community and interface with the agricultural community as um, including regenerative agricultural community. So how does all of those pieces of your uh, work fit in with your new acquisition, congratulations by the way, of um, a thousand acres uh, on the Gaviota Coast, uh, Halama Canyon Ranch. Steve, maybe you could speak to what is your vision for Halama Canyon Ranch, um, and, and how does that fit into the larger regenerative agriculture movement in this country?
0: Sure, thank you. Um, well, just for context, you know, in 2019, we, we started a, a capital campaign to acquire the Halama Canyon Ranch and to create there a center for regenerative agriculture that would really be a, a regional hub for the education of our community, raising ecological literacy, uh, for the training of current and future land stewards, for a a large scale uh, research, uh, applied research site where we could start to focus on deeper dive into understanding the links between regenerative practices and outcomes, uh, positive ecological outcomes that we're all uh, desperately in need of um, and in our land stewardship across the world and to be a place where we could stimulate enterprises that are built on regenerative principles and practices. So really the the short, sweet way of saying it is is that the project and the land uh, up there is really a place where we can demonstrate how to restore ecosystem through agriculture, how to share that with others, how to learn more about it, and how to make it business as usual. Uh, and so that's really the, um, the simple way of describing the huge goal that we have.
1: I love that. Um, and and the piece that's so interesting, or one of the pieces that's really interesting to me about the work that you're doing, is this idea of stimulating enterprises as a way to kind of prove up the model of regenerative ag and that it is something that can be an economically viable pathway for farmers across the nation. And uh, so one of the pieces of that puzzle, I think, is Figure Eight Foods, Uh great name, and uh, that Figure Eight brand. Maybe, Jesse, would you be willing to talk a little bit about what Figure Eight is and um, how it fits into this larger mission?
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, Figure Eight Foods and uh, our kind of flagship product uh, that we launched uh, last year, um, really represents the work that we do on the land. Um, we focus on what we like to term keystone crops or production systems, those that have uh, an ecological, uh, economic, and uh, kind of social-cultural um, importance. And so our, our flagship product was a, a persimmon vinegar. This is made from a natural fermentation process and really sourced from a, a crop that is climate appropriate to, to this region. Deep tap roots, um, low water use, low inputs, uh, very resilient, productive, but also produces a food crop that is uh, highly nutritious and, and really good for uh, uh, the human system. And so when we try to conceive a, a formulation of a new product, we really look at you know uh, the crop and the landscape first and what it really needs and find a crop that then can meet a need within the marketplace while also providing health benefits to, to humans. So it's, uh, the concept is restorative foods from regenerative agriculture, and we're restoring both ecosystems as well as human health systems. And that really translates across different sectors. So our, our next product coming to market is looking more at um, livestock and grazing systems and sourcing proteins from livestock management that is holding in high importance um, the ecosystem function, uh, the outcomes in soil health and and water cycles and biodiversity on the land, and, and being able to produce a system that has that reciprocity and a product that's ready for, for more wide consumption. Um, so those are just two examples of looking at both a protein source as well as a climate-appropriate crop. Um, and we have uh, many more uh, kind of concepts uh, coming down the pipeline.
1: Well, I'm excited to learn what those are. Um, you are looking at other crops other than persimmon. Would you mind talking a little bit about some of the other crops that you're looking to explore and farm uh, on the Kalama Canyon Ranch property?
2: Yeah, of course. Well, I would kind of highlight two of note, um, one of which is uh, elderberry. Um, this is a native plant, you know, uh, uh, predominantly found in riparian uh, corridors. These are the kind of tree shrub buffers on either side of waterways, streams, and rivers, um, and they hold a huge importance for the cycling of water as well as the filtration of sediment before it enters our waterways. So these plants um, really fit an important ecological need on, um, on ranches and farms, but also have an amazing kind of economic opportunity. Uh, because of the global appeal of of elderberries for uh, syrups and tinctures and even for wines and such. Um, But most of the global supply is the European elderberry. Um, A predominant amount of that is is, is sourced and grown in China. But we have this amazing uh, western blue elderberry that's uh, endemic to, to this region of the United States. Um, that has uh, similar health benefits and compounds as well as just really thrives here uh, without supplementary irrigation and provides an amazing habitat for pollinators, so finding this blend between a native plant and a market opportunity is something that we really um, relish opportunity to engage with. Um, another one would be agave, obviously most uh, you know people are familiar with the uh, uh, blue agave uh, the the base crop for for tequila. Um, and there's a whole host of other agaves that uh, make both tequila as well as mezcal. And and there's so much exploration to be done with those different varietals that um, need no supplemental irrigation uh, or very little irrigation to thrive in this region. While also value adding more marginal landscapes, uh, you know, steep slopes, rocky terrain, not uh, a place where you would normally uh, place an orchard or or grow row crops, but you can grow. Uh, this, the, this climate appropriate drought resilient crop that, that also would allow you to, uh, uh, to increase the, the value, um, of your production system. And so those are just two more that kind of find their niches within, uh, the diversification of this agricultural landscape out at Halama Canyon Ranch.
1: So this iterative kind of discovery of crops that work with the landscape is a foundational element of what you all are doing and others in the regenerative agriculture community. And that's so important in, here in California, where you know, uh, with climate change and other regulations, like water is just becoming more and more scarce. Um, so uh, I love that part of your work and and uh, mission, and then developing these brands. And kind of interest in uh, these various crops, and then being able to share that with others, um, other farmers. That's where the change will come, right? The future change will come. So I I love that. Steve, let's talk a little bit about uh, the transaction that you all just closed. It was, um, had a lot of different players. And you had some partners who helped make the transaction possible. You want to talk a little bit about um, who you partnered with and how it all came together?
0: Absolutely. You know, we're really proud of the the transaction, and uh, and when I say proud, it's sort of like a, it's a pride in the the entire community here uh, on the central coast, and with um, links to Northern California and further Southern California, and and even links to um, the Midwest and the East Coast. Who. Um, a really a diverse, you know, blended approach to making this transaction happen that you know I hope could could um, inspire other transactions like this around the the country. What was I think unique about this was the 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 group of stakeholders that came together and and your team was <laughs> really engaged in the minutia of this. So again, another gratitude to you guys. But what we did was we we really brought together three, three primary stakeholders. There was conservation funding that was organized through the Land Trust for Santa Barbara County. And that conservation funding was in exchange for a conservation easement that now runs with the land in perpetuity. And that conservation easement was funded through a couple different sources. Um, the primary funding came through the Strategic Growth Council, um, the Salk Grant uh, out of the state of California. And then that was matched by a private donor to the uh, to the land trust that is associated with the Nature Conservancy. So there's a uh, a lot about a third of the transaction occurred through this conservation easement. Then we had, uh, you know, both large and small philanthropy partners um, that represent, you know, many interests from from, you know, this community, uh, like I said, throughout the region. The, and that really brought together uh, the lion's share of the uh, transaction. And then as we were approaching sort of a, a deadline uh, with the, on the, con- the purchase contract, we needed to take out a loan and we were able to find a group of sort of catalytic in, uh, lenders, sort of impact investors, if you will, who um, were willing to come together. And this was organized by a group in Santa Barbara called Legacy Works, um, who uh, I would recommend as well. And uh legacy was able to coordinate this loan and and bring to the table a million dollars for us um, to close the transaction in a timely fashion uh and allowing us time to continue to fundraise to repay that loan so this this blended approach uh, I think was really effective in the sense of bringing bringing philanthropy, conservation, and impact investment um stakeholders to the table to to really catalyze something meaningful in the community
1: so through all of that, that sounds very complicated, <laughs> and, and as we're, we're both very familiar with it, as we we kind of lived it um, <laughs> uh, over the last um, many months. But what would you share as far as lessons learned? If there was someone else out there who wanted to follow a similar model, what would you share with them about any any important lesson, sources of funding, ways to put together a campaign, um, what type of team you know you'd recommend someone. Have um, what are some of the things that you would share with others um, so that it could be implemented elsewhere
0: yeah that 's a great question um, well one one thing that really helped the transaction happen was that we had you know invested sellers to to put a um, you know a point on that because it was really uh, cooperation from the seller was important in this case because the timeline shifted for us a few times in the process of Reaching our fundraising goals and working with the state on uh, the conservation easement funding. So, so one piece of advice would be, you know, see if you find a, a seller uh, of land who's who's you know sympathetic or uh, op, you know really wants to see this sort of project unfold in the world. That 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 is uh, not having an adverse seller was was really important in in our process. I think the second thing I would uh, mention is, you know, you you do want to bring people into the transaction that have some deeper, uh, experience in real estate transactions. So, uh, it's worth investing in uh, a land use attorney or a real estate attorney. It's worth investing in consultants if you need it in terms of planning and, and land use planning. And then I guess the the third piece I would mention is that finding a committed group of, uh, early adopters to the project, you know, was really important for us, uh, we were fortunate to um, you know, share the vision with a few different you know, people in the community. A few of them uh, really took hold of the vision and wanted to help uh, make, it, make it real. And so uh, our team's ability to function grew exponentially by the number of committed advisors and you know, supporters that, um, that, that joined the team. So uh, hopefully some of those ideas give um, a little bit of, of context to, to how to get things moving.
1: Yeah. And uh, the other thing I would add, and this is kind of as your outside legal advisor, something unique that you had that a lot of nonprofits who are doing a big campaign or project of this type, you know, don't have, That I think gave you a leg up is you had already an established entity and you were doing some of this work. You had um, a 10 acre, I think, ranch uh, in your Summerlin location. So you, you had some history in the community. You had some. Um, you had a staff. You had a already an operation, and then you took the next step to go for the thousand acres. Um, am I right on that, or do you think that that helped you?
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, Beth. It, it, it's actually a really good point. I would uh, emphasize that we started in 2018 on the the 12 acre flagship farm in Summerland, and had spent you know a year plus. Uh, redesigning that that farm into a you know regenerative design and a, and a system that really reflected regenerative principles and practices. And in the course of that year plus, we started to engage with the community with uh, hosting tours and education programs for classrooms. And so a lot of the philanthropy that looked at the project saw this as a as a next step. You know, Summerlin was a proof of concept. And, and this was an obvious next step in the evolution of of the organization. So um, I guess another way of saying it is is try to you know match the um, ambition of your next step in your prod of, of your organization, you know, and have it reflect upon where you're coming from in a way that would make sense to um, someone who is considering and in, in, in evaluating you. And Beth, I guess I would ask you back if I could um, from your point of view as a land use attorney. How do you see the the challenges for other organizations in this around the state, around the region? You know, what do you think are the biggest challenges to making more projects like this happen?
1: Mm-hmm. That's a good question. The biggest challenge, I think, uh, is that you know when you have an innovative or different type of land use that you're proposing, something that doesn't fit squarely into many zoning codes. Um, and, you know, if we were in Texas and, you know, we we didn't need permits to do most things, that would be one thing. But California, as we all know, is a highly regulated uh, environment. So doing something in a state like this where there are so many strict land use regulations, uh, I think it, when you do something a little bit innovative, it can be uh, a challenge. So that, I think, was, I agree with you, having Land Use Council at the beginning, uh, you know, even before you were in escrow on the property, you were asking questions about, can I do what my vision is on this property? And having someone who can help show you that there is a path to that is, I think, uh, critical. So, yeah, I, I think if public agency anyone from a public agencies out there listening <laughs> um and and wanting more uh, of this type of project i think they should look to their code and and uh figure out you know where are there opportunities for conservation group, or are there any barriers potentially for conservation minded people to have scientists come and do research on properties to stay overnight when they're doing those types of uh, research projects? You know, Does the code allow for those types of innovative uh, conservation uses that will help um, further projects like this? But, uh, generally I would say I'm really excited about White Buffalo's future. And Jesse, uh, before we close out, I'm, I'm interested in your thought about what's next for White Buffalo. Uh, what, what, what are the, some of the things you're, you're most excited about seeing in the next, you know, one year, five years, 10 years.
2: Yeah. Thanks. And, um, Thank you both for speaking on, on that so eloquently. I would, I would add and kind of move into this question is, you know, one of the things I feel is so unique about our project and why we were able to garner so much support in the beginning was that, you know, our, our plan really spoke to people in many different arenas. You know, many people came to, to support our organization, um, with a, with, with varied perspectives. You know, some people were really focused on, uh, food system resiliency. Other people were thinking a lot about human health and nutrient density in, in our, in our food. Um, other people really wanted to see more economic development in rural landscapes and communities. Um, other people wanted to conserve land, you know, for agricultural purposes, for, um, you know, the conservation value about diversity. So all these different people kind of came to the table to support. Um, and that's what I'm really excited about. Um, getting to move forward with, um, now that we, we have the ability to really steward this landscape into the future. Um, I'm really excited about being able to bring, um, you know, young and upcoming farmers and ranchers into, uh, the field and, and, and get to engage with them in real time around, um, you know, vineyards or, you know, cattle and livestock management or, um, agroforestry systems, you know, tree crops, um, soil building, science, research, like all these different people who are able to come and and learn with us and ask questions with us on this landscape are going to ultimately and exponentially increase our ability to make better decisions moving forward you know the eyes to acre ratio the more people and more perspectives you bring to a landscape um, the more those land stewards have to work with when they make decisions every day um, and that's what really gets me excited is is walking uh walking fence lines and pastures and 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 in orchards um, with different uh, thought leaders and, um, you know, cultural creatives and chefs and, um, you know, artists, painters um, to really reimagine uh, the future of agriculture that ultimately we all want to see. Um, you know, we want to see, you know, grazing animals in beautiful pastures. We want to walk under intact oak woodlands and, you know, pick healthy fruit from trees. And I mean, I know that we all want our children to, to experience the same thing. So I think that that's really um, the next phase and evolution of this project is um, obviously getting to work and implementing our plan, but more importantly to me, uh, is doing it in a way that engages with all these stakeholders that that came to our plate and to to help make this a reality.
1: Wow, I, I want to go, <laughs> I want to go out in the fields with you, Jesse. After that, uh, and walk the fence line. I like that. So, Steve, what would you recommend if there was someone out there listening and they wanted to learn more about White Buffalo and your campaign or the future plans for White Buffalo, what should they do?
0: Oh, great question, Beth. Um, there are you know, lots of different ways to engage uh, with the White Buffalo Land Trust community as it's growing. Um, you know, The simplest way is to start at our web address, whitebuffalolandtrust.org and uh, or our food brand figure8foods.com and uh, you know at whitebuffalolandtrust.org, you'll uh, see opportunities to join a mailing list um, perhaps become a monthly recurring member uh, find out about volunteer days field tours um, opportunities for workshops, um, opportunities to um, come to a speaker series event, uh, some in person now, again, some still virtual. Um, so lots of different ways to engage, but I think it all just starts by visiting whitebuffalolandtrust.org. All right,
1: well, I, I just... I want to express huge appreciation to Steve and Jesse for coming out uh, and speaking with me today for this podcast, and I'm super excited to see uh, what uh, the future holds for White Buffalo Land Trust. Thanks to everyone who was able to listen today.
0: Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.